If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 41. As we continue our study in the life of Joseph, thank you for your prayers for me um, and my eye this week. I went into work, I think it was like Wednesday, and realized that my eye was significantly better uh, just overnight. And uh, I'm not 100%, but I'm, I'm 90%, 80% of the way there. I'm reading normally again. My sermon is here before me, fully written out as I prefer. That's how I spiritually work through the Word of God. I, I don't write a manuscript to be dull. I write it because this is how God deals with me, is when I'm writing. That's when I have actually the most profound moments of joy in who Christ is, is when I'm writing sermons and then giving them to you is, is the next part of that. So I'm really thankful to sort of be back to normal and uh, very grateful for the Lord's mercy. So we're here in the study of Joseph and we're in chapter 41. It can be found on page 40 and 41 of your pew Bible. Now, Joseph, you might recall, is a man with a dream. A man with a dream, not the Disney variety, not the wish upon a star kind. No, Joseph has a God-given dream, a revelation from God about his future. To make the vision absolutely sure, to seal it in Joseph's mind, God gave the dream twice. In the first dream, Joseph's stalk, it's a stalk of wheat, stands up and his 11 brothers also represented as stalks of wheat bow to him. And then in his second dream, it's not only his brothers who bow to him now represented as the sun and moon stars, but his father and mother even bow to him. The second dream, the dream in which even his parents bowed to him, scandalized his family in the ancient world and ancient culture Parents did not bow to children. For something like that to happen, Joseph would have to rise to incredible heights. Joseph's brothers hated him for the dreams. Uh, Jacob, his father, was amazed and couldn't believe that he would ever bow to his little son. But we are told, interestingly, you'll recall, that Jacob, much like the Virgin Mary did, pondered all these things in his heart. As unbelievable as the dream was, Jacob did see God's hand on Joseph. And so he wondered if these things could somehow be true. Well, the brothers had no such hesitation. Outraged by his dreams and jealous of his favor and giftedness, Joseph's brothers sell him into foreign slavery. They mock him, saying, what will become of your dreams now? It's hard not to hear here an echo of what we hear at the cross. If you are the son of God, come down, come down. The jeering crowds mocked Jesus, who claimed he could rebuild the temple in three days, but who was now hanging helpless on a cross. So Joseph in the pit looked like a boy with delusions of grandeur now put in his proper place. But in both cases, in both cases, the word of God was not sleeping. It was just waiting, waiting for the perfect, perfect time. And that time has now come. In this chapter, Joseph goes from rags to riches, quite literally. Joseph was a slave and imprisoned for about 
14 years, 14 years of preparation. Psalm 105 calls this time in Joseph's life a time of refinement by fire. But now, beginning in chapter 41, Joseph will enter a second 14-year period. But in this 14-year period, he will reign as a king in Egypt. The promises of God seem to have failed, but they were only waiting. Second Peter 3 warns us that many in our own day, maybe many even in the church, will think the same thing. God's threats of judgment, Jesus' promises to return, will seem dormant or even ridiculous. Most people in our culture believe that they have outgrown such fairy tales. But Peter warns us that God's promises are not asleep. They're only waiting. They are crouching. Because it's such a long chapter, I will invite you to remain seated and please give your attention to God's word. We'll read all of this uh, extensive chapter, chapter 41 of Genesis. This is God's word. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there come a, came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream... You can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed, reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as hungry as at the beginning. Then I awoke. 
I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land. Take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneh and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship 
and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the land, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we cannot live by bread alone, but only from the words that proceed from your mouth. Your son, our greater Joseph, has reserved for us in the word treasure after treasure, and he opens to us the storehouse of his goodness tonight as his word is laid before us. Cause us to eat and drink and be filled, for we are hungry and we live in a nation of darkness and hunger. So fill us, and may there be food here in the house of the Lord for every believer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When Joseph woke up that morning, he had no idea that this day would be the day all of God's promises to him would emerge. As I studied this passage I was constantly reminded of Paul's words to us in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Some of God's promises to us unfold gradually. Over 40 years, we may see God's blessing, for example, on our marriage. But God's greatest promises tend to explode suddenly. As we approach Christmas, we remember these wonderful words. And suddenly, suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. And so it was for Joseph. Suddenly, Joseph was taken from prison, shaved, as was the Egyptian custom, and hurried in front of Pharaoh. By the end of the day, he was the greatest man in the empire. Chapter 41 unfolds this dramatic elevation in three sections. First, in verses 1 through 13, Pharaoh receives a dream from God, but cannot interpret the dreams. Prompted by God, the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph. Then, in verses 14 through 36, we see how Joseph interpreted the dreams and also provided a plan of action in response to them. And lastly, in 37 through 57, we trace Joseph's meteoric rise to power as a ruler in Egypt. So God gives a dream, God gives a prophet, and finally God gives a king. Let's look at these together. Let's look first at verses 1 through 13. God gives a dream. In these verses, Pharaoh has two consecutive dreams that are the key to his future and the future of his civilization. In the first, he is standing along the Nile, the Nile River, remember, is sacred to Pharaoh and the source of his power. The Nile overflows yearly, 
and its water is what keeps Egypt lush and fruitful. The Nile, you might say, is what holds back the Sahara Desert. It's the key to his civilization. As he stands there, seven cows emerge that are plump and healthy. They graze on the fresh grasses along the river. But then he watches in horror, a nightmare, as seven disgusting animals come up and devour the plump cattle. It's a deeply disturbing scene, if you think about it. What he is seeing is a sort of cannibalism. It's violent and horrible. What could lead cows who are you know, herbivores to eat the flesh of their own, or people for that matter, to involve themselves in cannibalism? Only something nightmarish, something horrible. Well, he wakes up, but then he, he falls back asleep, and God confirms the first dream, just like he did with Joseph, by sending a second dream that bears the same message but uses slightly different imagery. If you were here in our church at the time that Pastor Trescar did his study of Revelation, you will recognize this prophetic technique. Two visions are often given in the Bible that are not consecutive, but are different angles on one set of events. And so in this second visionary dream, Pharaoh sees grain. Verse 5, a single stalk has seven ears. That's a very plenteous harvest he's seeing. But then in 6 and 7, a second set of seven sprouts. But these are ugly and blighted by the east wind. For Pharaoh, that's the Sahara Desert wind. The seven ugly devour the seven healthy ears of grain. Again, a kind of cannibalism indicating that the hardship of the ugly years will be much greater than the bounty of the good years. Pharaoh now has the key to the future. The Egyptians believe that Pharaoh is a god. Many civilizations recorded the dreams of their kings, believing that kings were somehow connected to God and their dreams more relevant than those of ordinary men. I read recently that Henry VIII had someone who recorded his dreams for this very reason. And it was interesting to read even this week a recent article in Life magazine that made an argument that dreams can be, in some cases, more than just fantasy. But whatever the case, the key thing to note here is that Pharaoh is unable to use the vision given by God. Neither he nor all his wise men can interpret the dream. God is, in a sense, you might say, gently mocking the so-called gods of Egypt. Pharaoh, who is viewed as a son of the gods, cannot tell the future. He cannot interpret his own dreams. And the priests of these false gods are also mute and helpless. This is not the last time God will humiliate the gods of Egypt. For now, though, God has condescended to give Pharaoh a dream, a vision. But God will not let him profit from it without a man of God. Pharaoh needs a prophet, one who can speak for the true God. We can almost imagine as Pharaoh becomes more and more anxious as the situation unfolds. He knows these dreams are visionary. He knows they're not normal. He can't get the images out of his mind, and then no one can help him 
which probably makes him all the more desperate to find an answer. You see, the very fact that no one can see into these dreams only feeds his desire to know more. It only confirms to his, him that his dreams are indeed wonderful. This desperation then opens the door for what might otherwise have been a crazy suggestion. In verses 9 and th- through 13, the cupbearer offers a final desperate hope. A Hebrew, a Hebrew slave, a Hebrew criminal who has done this and done it once before. I think there's a very important lesson for us here as believers. First, it should remind us that God does use secular leaders, unbelieving leaders, which is undoubtedly why Paul commands us to pray for our leaders, for all who are in authority over us. History is full of examples of unbelievers who God used to help others stabilize nations, win critical wars, or discover medical breakthroughs. Here, Pharaoh is used by God to preserve the Old Testament church. Yes, Joseph is the key to this salvation, but we shouldn't ignore the part God chose to give to Pharaoh in this situation. But at the same time, in balancing that truth, notice that God had placed a limit on what can be done outside of his church, outside of his believing people. Only the believer, only Joseph, can understand those things that have to do with salvation. True, unbelievers are given visions on occasion in the Bible. This is not the only one. But they are only ever given visions that apply to their station, to their limited role for the benefit of their civilization. This famine, though, is not just a part of world history. It's a part of the church's history. Joseph must rise because he must save the Old Testament church, the Holy Family, Jacob and his children. Egypt must become a kind of nest or cradle for the church. So because the vision touches, touches on the progress of grace and not just the survival of human civilization, there must be a prophet. God will use Pharaoh. God will use people like Pharaoh in our day. But God reserves the glory for himself. The gods and religion of Pharaoh are useless. Just enough wisdom is given to Pharaoh to make him useful and make him helpful. But just enough is held back from him to make him humble and to ensure God's glory alone. Old Testament professor Westminster Seminary, Ian Digad says this, because in Egyptian thinking, Pharaoh was himself the embodiment of a god. Supposedly, Pharaoh's divine power balanced the natural forces and ensured peace and prosperity in Egypt. Yet throughout this encounter, Joseph not only exposed Pharaoh's inability to control the future and provide for his people, but also repeatedly pointed him to God as the one who truly has this power. So God gives dreams to Pharaoh, but those dreams are not enough. And that leads us really to verses 14, beginning in verse 14 through 36. As God, having given the dream, now gives a prophet. We won't read all those verses again uh, for time's sake. But in this section, the God who gave the dream now gives the prophet. And that really is the way we should see Joseph here. 
as God's prophet, as one who speaks for God. Remember, a priest is someone who takes you by the hand and takes you to God. A prophet is someone who comes from God with a message for you. Often, sometimes, quite often, something you don't want to hear or something you desperately need to hear. And that's Joseph's role here. And so you see the very first thing Joseph does as a prophet in verses 15 and 16. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This confession of faith was first given, remember, to the cupbearer and baker in chapter 40. There Joseph said to them, remember, do not interpretations belong to God? To feel the full weight of these verses, you must imagine with me the setting for a moment. Joseph has been suddenly pulled out of prison. He's standing before the most powerful man alive at the time. We can only imagine the glamour and opulence of the setting. Everyone in that room, everyone in that room besides Joseph believes that Pharaoh is a son of God. The room is full of sycophants and magicians and masters of the occult. Meanwhile, God has plunged Joseph down into years and years of slavery and imprisonment. But here, as soon as Joseph is allowed to speak, what does he say? He gives glory to God and deflects glory away from himself. This is the work of a prophet. A prophet speaks for God, but does not seek glory for himself. He is a mouthpiece only. That is the case here. All this should remind us of Jesus' words when he sent his disciples out as prophets into the world. Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to Little children, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Humble before God as a little child and looking to God to reveal the hidden things, Joseph is able, beginning in verse 25, to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And notice with me his key insight, what seems to have unlocked the dreams for him. It's in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, here's the key, the dreams of Pharaoh are one, and God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Joseph immediately realizes two things about these dreams. First, they are really one dream being repeated. These aren't consecutive dreams or different dreams. They're really about one time, one event in history, and God is confirming the first dream by the second dream that says the same thing but with a different image. Second of all, Joseph immediately realizes that these dreams are about what God is about to do. They're not about the distant future of, say, the Messiah coming or something. They're about immediately what is about to happen. They're warnings, predictions of something that is close. Some of Pharaoh's wise men may have guessed already that the dreams have something to do with a famine, but they can't know whether they're really one dream and when these things will be, are they seeing something that is 100 years away or something that starts tomorrow? J Joseph, because of God's spirit, is able to answer these questions with certainty. It is one 14-year period 
that is in view in both dreams and is coming now. Now, how did Joseph, how did Joseph know that? How could he be so sure? On one level, we would all want to say the Holy Spirit inspired him. That's why he knew what the dream was. And that's correct. In verse 38, Pharaoh acknowledged that Joseph is full of the Holy Spirit of God. However, in this case, I think Joseph an- Joseph's answer was so swift, so quick, primarily because the Spirit of God had been preparing him all along for this moment. Remember, Joseph has done this twice before. He had, remember at 17, he had two dreams, which he eventually understood to be one dream. Then in prison, what do we have again? Two dreams, right? Two dreams that are going to come true in three days. As Joseph stood in front of Pharaoh, as he stood on the center of the stage of the world at that moment, the spirit of God had been preparing him for 14 years for that moment. The spirit had already taught him to look at dreams this way. Do you see what this means? It means that Joseph understood that everything that had happened to him was meaningful, that God had not been torturing him or toying with him. It was all scripted. It was all planned. Joseph stands there and in his mind, he says, of course, of course, two dreams. I should have known this was the plan all along. Here we see the hand of God, the writer of the scripture story. And so do you see everything up to this moment was meaningful after all? It was all purposeful. The slavery and imprisonment may have felt pointless when it happened to him, even harsh. Joseph may have struggled with feelings of abandonment and despair, but now standing in that moment before the king, it all made sense. His life, which seemed so random and unfair, was now seen as a beautiful tapestry woven by God. The ancient church father Chrysostom notes how even Potiphar's wife, that wicked woman that tried to seduce Joseph, that woman that Bunyan called wanton in Pilgrim's Progress, even she ends up inadvertently bringing about God's plan. If not for her lust and her lies, Joseph would have never been in the royal prison. He would never have met the cupbearer. He would have never risen to power. Chrysostom says, quote, such are God's ways that the very things by which we are hurt by these same are we benefited. Whereas Joseph will put it at the end of his story when speaking to his brothers He says to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I know that this is extremely hard, but are you able by God's spirit, Christian, to step back from your life a little and see the pattern, see what God is doing? Can you see how the pains and gifts have been interwoven? Our lives are like a complex piece of music There are harmonies and melodies and descants. Individually, they don't make sense. They even may at times seem to conflict with each other. But there will be a day before the king of all the earth, the true Pharaoh, when you, like Joseph, will look back and say to God, well done, well done. 
And as a prophet in Christ, you will say the interpretation is always with God. He owns all the riddles of my life and of my world. And every day here, every day here, brothers and sisters, will, in the light of that one great day, shine with new meaning. The dreams will make sense. And you and I will see them for what they always were, what they were always meant to be. So God gives a dream. God gives a prophet who he's prepared very specifically for this task for 14 years. And now Joseph sees it all, as we often see in our lives. Lastly, in verses 37 through 57, God gives a king. God gives a king. Joseph becomes a spirit-filled ruler in Egypt. Pharaoh is clear in his reasoning. Verse 38 And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? The Bible teaches us that the spirit of God does not simply inspire dreams, visions, or preaching. He also gives administrative gifts, ruling gifts. We recognize these today in our ruling elders. What does Paul tell us to do about our ruling elders in the church? He says, look at their homes See how their homes are ordered and then appoint them as elders. Why? Because the ability to lead well is also, the ability to lead well is also a gift of the Spirit. As you continue to read the Old Testament, you will note that the Spirit appears in the lives of the builders of the temple. Even the craftsmen who made the temple, we're told, were given skill by the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph is empowered not just to be a prophet, but to be a king, administrative gifts. In verse 40, Joseph is set then over all of Pharaoh's house, total power to order and administrate it. This is now the third time you'll recall that Joseph has been given rule over a house. He ran Potiphar's house and he learned faithfulness there. He then ran the prison and was faithful in that small thing. And now God, in keeping with Jesus' own words, has exalted him to greater things. He will rule over Pharaoh's house. This is just another way in which we see God's plan. At the time, it felt terrible. It felt terrible to be a slave and then a criminal. But now you can see how it was preparation. Joseph now understands the Egyptian language. And culture. Why? Because he became a slave, because he became a servant, because he became a prisoner. He knows how to run things in an Egyptian setting, not just among the flocks of his father. To seal Joseph's position, he gives Joseph a signet ring in verse 42, clothes him in linen, and puts a gold chain about his neck. He gives Joseph a new name and makes a marriage for him with a noble Egyptian family. That woman, that Egyptian woman, will give him two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who will be counted as two of the greatest tribes in Israel. I won't develop this now, but just a reminder of something I've said before in our study in Genesis. Joseph's sons were a full half Egyptian by race. I've said this before, but let me reinforce it here. The Old Testament is not about one race in the way we think about race today. Anyone who joined the people of God 
from any race were accepted. Ruth was a Moabite, and she's in the line of Jesus. And Moses, his own children, were half Israelite and half Midianite. And yet they were key and crucial to the life of God's people. In verses 46 and following, Joseph then goes out with this new authority and new life. He goes out into Egypt and he implements his plan. He begins a rationing system in preparation for the years of famine. No doubt there were those who hated him for this in those first seven years. Some agreed, some didn't. There would have been many who simply wanted to spend to let the good times roll. But Joseph knew what our nation has forgotten, that debt is dangerous and saving for the dark times is wisdom. Before we leave this moment in Joseph's life, though, let me draw you back to one verse in this section, verse 43. And he, Pharaoh, the text says, made Joseph ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Remember Joseph's dreams at 17 years of age? His brothers and his parents bowed to him. There he was in his fancy multicolored coat, and all were recognizing him as king. For 14 years, from age 17 to about 30 or 31, that vision from God seemed impotent and dormant. But what about now? For 14 lean years, for 14 lean years, Joseph was battered, bruised, enslaved, and imprisoned. Now for 14 full years, he will reign over Egypt, bringing life to the people and saving his own family and countless others. Notice even the language here that reminds us of Abraham and the blessings that were on Abraham. Remember how Abraham was taken out and shown the stars and told that his children would be as many as the sand on the seashore. And so in verse 49, we're told as Joseph did his wise work as king, he stockpiled so much food that it was as sand on the seashore, innumerable. And so Pharaoh says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that this Joseph is ruler in Egypt. Through Joseph's spirit-given wisdom, he will store up bread for all and hold out life, life to those who are starving. The world will come to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh says in verse 55, go to Joseph, go to Joseph, do whatever he says. Pharaoh here reminds us of Mary at the wedding in Canaan when the wine was run out and she says to the servants, here is my son, do whatever he says. Now, please hear this. If you've heard nothing else I've said tonight, hear this. This wonderful picture of Joseph being invested with power to save, this picture of Joseph opening the storehouses of food to a starving world, this picture drawn by the Spirit's own hand is meant to lead you and me to Christ. When you see a thousand years before Christ's birth, a righteous man, Joseph, leaving his father's house, 
stripped of his garment, thrust into prison, forgotten, saying to himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then that one is raised and given authority to save his younger wicked brothers and the world around them. These things are the things of Christ. And the church of Jesus has preached this from the very beginning. The church fathers point to this chapter whenever they teach to us John 6. Jesus is the bread of life. Lutheran and Anglican churches pair this chapter with John 6 in their lectionary readings as they go through the Bible each year. And then, of course, it was the Puritans who spoke of it in the sweetest words the English language could afford. Thomas Watson, one of those Puritans, says this, Christ is our Joseph. Christ is our Joseph that opens all the treasuries and storehouses of grace and communicates to us. He is not only sweet as the honeycomb, but drops as the honeycomb. This is a great comfort. In Christ, our mediator, there is a cornucopia and fullness of all grace. And Christ is desirous that we should come to him for grace. As a pastor, I'm deeply encouraged by this truth. No matter how hardened someone is, no matter how hardened someone is against what I'm saying tonight, or any night for that matter, no matter how distracted or disinterested, there will come a time in every life in this room, there will come a time when you will be hungry and you will be thirsty and this world will not be enough. I don't care who you are, it will happen. Samuel Rutherford's hymn says so dismissively, the streams of earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. So for the believer and the unbeliever, here alone is food that satisfies. Here is the true Joseph. Eat and drink and live. His grain is like the sand on the seashore, his love and oceans well. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this table, we could end this sermon in no better way. Thank you for providentially arranging this sermon to correspond with the coming to the table. For here we see the generosity of our Savior. Like Joseph, he stored up all that his people and his younger wicked brothers needed, for we are his younger wicked brothers. But unlike Joseph, the grain that Jesus stores is not the produce of some foreign land. No, the food he has stored for us came at much greater cost to himself. For it is only through his body and his blood that we can eat and drink and live. So, Father, now as we come to the table, give us eyes through the Spirit to see our greater Joseph, to see him in his glory, to see how he reaches us out to us now, even through the word and through our songs, through our readings, and now through communion, and offers himself and his grace to needy and broken people. Fill us with wonder and joy and satisfy us now at this table. Satisfy us in a way the world cannot do, in a way the life that we're living in its cannibalism 
can never afford, satisfy us in Christ, we pray. For we ask it in his name. Amen.